I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to the 23rd Psalm. Psalm 23 is a psalm about life between the cross, described in Psalm 22, and the kingdom, described in Psalm 24. And in this psalm, David pictures God as a shepherd and he pictures us as sheep. And just like sheep, we have a lot of needs. But the shepherd can meet every one of them. The first need we looked at last time is worry. The antidote is in verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And this morning we're going to see how our shepherd meets two other needs. One of those is busyness, verse 2. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. And the second is emotional hurts related to the soul. Verse 3 begins, He restores my soul. He cares for us when we're physically exhausted, and He cares for us when we're psychologically exhausted. The Greek word for soul is psyche. He knows exactly what we need when we're running out of control physically. And He knows exactly what we need when we're running out of control emotionally. And we're going to look at those two needs together this morning because they really go hand in hand. The antidote to both is to stop, to lie down, to be quiet, and to feed on God's green pastures. Now the first sheepish need we want to look at is busyness. Here's a quiz to see if you're a workaholic. Don't raise your hand, just point at the person it applies to. Are you always in a hurry? Is your to-do list always unrealistically long? Do you use days off to catch up with unfinished work? Do you feel guilty when you relax? Do you have to get sick to take time off? How'd you do? If you answered yes to any of those, you've got the symptoms of a workaholic. Let me put it this way. You know you're a workaholic when all your Christmas cards come from business associates. You know you're a workaholic when you head out for back-to-school night and you don't know which one your kids attend. You know you're a workaholic when you wear a beeper to church. You know you're a workaholic when you take business-related reading material into the bathroom. And you know you're a workaholic when your family refers to you as occupant. Now, is that the kind of life God wants us to have? No. Why is it that we live such lives of frantic activity? Why are we in such a hurry? 
Well, let me suggest at least three reasons, and these are not very flattering. Number one is pride. If you will listen carefully to your conversations about how busy you are, you will probably detect some swelling pride when you think about how effectively you're spinning all of these plates. You see, in America today, busyness has become a badge of honor. We brag about how many irons we've got in the fire. And somehow we have come up with the idea that busyness equals significance. So the more busy you are, the more significant you are. And that's why people tend to overwork. We have confused our work with our worth. We have confused what we do with who we are. And so we think if I work a lot, I'm worth a lot. You see, in America, we get our primary identity from what we do. That's why when you're introduced to someone, what's the first question you ask? What do you do? I'm a brain surgeon. Ooh. I park cars. Oh, nice to know you. See, we get our worth from our work. But the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says my worth doesn't come from what I do. My worth comes from who I am. And who am I? Well, I'm a child of God. Now, did I become a child of God because I worked my way up from the bottom of the organization? Did I start out in the mail room and then I got to the top of the production charts and God looked over and said, I think I'm going to adopt that guy because he's so productive? No. I became who I am as a child of God for only two reasons. One is the grace of God. And that grace was demonstrated at the cross where Jesus died in my place, where Jesus did all the work, where Jesus said, it is finished. You see, I get my worth not from my work, but from Jesus' work. That's what grace is. And then the second reason I'm a child of God is the love of God. Listen to the way John puts it in 1 John 3, 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. We are the children of God because God the Father has chosen to bestow a great love upon you and me. Now, there are three things you need to always keep in mind about God's love. Number one, you will never fully know how much God loves you. You will never fully understand, you will never fully comprehend how much God loves you. That's why Ephesians 3.19 says His love surpasses knowledge. Secondly, you will never do anything to cause God to love you more. And thirdly, you will never do anything 
to cause God to love you less. You see, it's not based on performance. It's unconditional love. So as you sit here this morning, no matter what you have done or haven't done, no matter what you are doing or are not doing, you know how valuable God thinks you are? He thinks you're valuable enough to give up His only begotten Son. When you were in junior high and you got a girlfriend, did you ever write her name on your palm? Usually if you weren't real committed, you wrote it in pencil. And if you thought this was it, you wrote it in ink. Listen to what God says in Isaiah 49, 16. I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. You know how much God loves you? He's got two indelible marks on his palms. Your name and the nail marks. And what did you do to deserve either one of them? Nothing. So for those of you who are too busy this morning, I have one word for you. Relax. Your worth doesn't come from your work. Your worth comes from God's grace and God's love. But then there's a second reason we stay too busy, and that's fear. See, if we're honest, we have to admit that stillness scares us a little bit. Quietness tends to intimidate us a little bit. So what do we do? We do our best to fill every area of our lives with noise. From elevators, to cars, to bedrooms, to exercise, we want noise of some kind to keep us from the quiet stillness of being alone with our thoughts and with the Lord. Now, why are we so afraid to be still? Well, one reason is we're afraid to lose ground. We think, if I stop to reflect, then I'm not moving ahead. If I stop to think, somebody might pass me by and I'll never catch up. Secondly, we're afraid to look bad. Have you ever been sitting at your desk thinking? Maybe you were considering a course of action. Maybe you were sorting out solutions that were wise rather than just expedient. And somebody walked in. What do you do? You jump and you act like you're busy. Because we don't want to look bad. In our minds, we associate stillness with lack of initiative. We associate resting with laziness. And so we're afraid to stop and be quiet because we might look bad. But then there's a third thing we're afraid about, and I think this is the primary thing. We're afraid to look inside. Have you ever had friends who do everything they can not to be alone with you because they don't want to talk about anything of substance? Sometimes we do that with God. 
We keep the noise level up and we keep moving because we think if we're in constant motion, that will protect us from his scrutiny. We're afraid to have an honest conversation with God because we fear what that might reveal in us. And then there's a third reason for our busyness, and that's blindness. In a recent CNN poll, 59% of Americans said, I'd like to slow down and relax more. And yet in a Harris poll, it showed that we have eight and a half hours less leisure time per week than a decade ago. We are working more and enjoying life less. Now, why is that? Well, I think it's because we're blind to what's really important. We have fallen for the lie that busy lives are more important than meaningful lives. Did you ever get so preoccupied with getting more that you don't enjoy what you've already got? You know, the sad thing today is that many people who work hard to get a beautiful big house are never home. I like what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 4.6. He said, one handful of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after wind. You see, the truth we need to open our eyes to is this, and I want, to, want you to get this this morning. The greatest things in life are not things. Now, that's hard for us to focus on because we live in a society that is committed to getting things. In today's culture, it's considered a tragedy to die penniless. But see, the truth is, everybody dies penniless. When you die, everything you work for is gone if everything you worked for is things. As a pastor, I've been with a lot of people who were dying. I have never had one person on their deathbed say to me, I wish I had spent more time at the office. They say to me, I wish I had spent more time with God. I wish I had spent more time with my wife or my husband. I wish I had spent more time with my kids. Now, what is the antidote to busyness? Number one is rest. Psalm 23, 2 says, He makes me lie down. Now, our bodies were not made for nonstop work. That's one of the reasons God gave us the seventh day as what? A day of rest. You say, well, I've got too much to do to take a day off. Well, God took a day off after creation. Who are you to say you don't need one? We need to take time to relax. We need to take time to be with God. We need to take time to be with our family. Now, this is especially true for two groups of people. 
One group is those of you who are self-employed. If you're self-employed, your tendency is to never stop working. And you justify that by saying, I've got to make this business go. And the other group this is especially important for is those of you who are single parents. And I just want to stop and say, if you're a single parent here today, you are a hero in my book. That's right. I honor you because I don't know how you do it. But having said that, let me say this. You've got to set some parameters because you will never do your best without rest. An archer will tell you that if you never take the tension off the bow, it loses strength. You say, but if I take time to rest, how will I ever catch up? Well, let me give you a great verse. Psalm 127.2 It is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors. God says it's in vain for you to get up early to work more. It's vain for you to stay late to work more. It's vain for you to eat the bread of painful labors. Why? For He gives to His beloved even in His sleep. God doesn't want you to live a life of frantic activity, and so He promises to provide for you even when you're sleeping. Sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is go home and go to bed. This is a great verse for Sunday afternoon naps. Just don't take one Sunday morning while I'm preaching. The first antidote is rest. Second antidote is refreshment. Look again at the second verse. He makes me lie down in green pastures. That's what sheep like to eat. And he leads me beside quiet waters. Quiet waters are waters that sheep can drink from. And what he's saying is we need time alone with God for spiritual refreshment, to feed on His green pastures and to drink from His still waters. You know, sometimes we say, what I need is a vacation. Well, you may need a vacation, but a vacation won't necessarily help spiritual fatigue because you need more than just time off to recharge physically. You need time off to recharge spiritually. You need time with God. Some people say, well, if I give my life to Christ, He's going to give me too much to do, and I've already got too much to do. But see, the truth is, if you give your life to Christ, He's not going to add more to your already hectic life. He's going to take away some of those things you're already doing. See, he doesn't want to speed you up. He wants to slow you down. He is concerned about your rest and refreshment. I mean, think about it. A sheep in green pastures by still waters would say, it doesn't get any better than that. 
You see, for a sheep, this is the perfect picture of paradise. And that's exactly where God wants to lead you and me, to a place of peaceful rest in his presence. An oasis of quiet amidst the chaos of life. And then the third antidote after rest and refreshment is restoration. Verse 3 says, He restores my soul. Now life is tough. And we get hurt. And sometimes we get beat up by discouragement or depression or despair or failure or frustration. We all have scars from the past. We all carry emotional baggage. But the good news is that that's a need the Good Shepherd can handle. God wants to restore your soul. Now, how does He do that? How does He restore my soul? Well, He has to meet at least three primary needs, primary scars on our souls. And those scars are guilt, grief, and grudges. First way God restores your soul is by removing your guilt. Nothing destroys your soul faster than guilt. And David experienced that in Psalm 38. He said in verse 4, For my iniquities are gone over my head as a heavy burden. They weigh too much for me. I am bent over and greatly bowed down. I go mourning all day long. Guilt is a burden on our souls that is too much to carry. You know, the big problem with guilt is that it doesn't naturally go away. Time doesn't remove it. And you can move to another location, but guess what? You take your guilt with you. So how do you deal with guilt? Well, you know, people try several options. One way is they try to deny it. People say, just bury the past. But the problem is when you bury something that has a life of its own, it comes back from the dead. I've had people tell me, I thought I put that behind me a long time ago, but the guilt came back. You see, that's the way guilt is. We can't just deny it. Second way people try is by minimizing it. You minimize guilt when you say, well, it's no big deal. I mean, on a scale of one to ten, it's only a five. It wasn't that big of a sin. And when people tell me that, I always say, then why do you still remember it? Why is it that you can't forget it? Why is it that when we're talking about guilt this morning, it pops back into your mind? You see, minimizing it doesn't work. And another thing people try to do is compromise it. You compromise guilt by lowering your standards. You say, well, all right, if I feel guilty about that, I'll just decide that I don't think that's wrong anymore. I once got a fortune cookie that said, commit a sin twice and it won't seem like sin anymore. 
Well, you know, there's a certain degree of truth to that because the Bible says we are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. But though committing sin will make it easier to sin, it will never relieve the guilt. And then a fourth thing we do is we rationalize it. We say, well, everybody does it, when the truth is everybody doesn't do it. Or we go out and we find somebody who's worse than we are, and we say, well, at least I'm better than that guy. You know, to rationalize means rational lies. And whenever I rationalize, my head is trying to convince my heart that it's okay. And I don't know about you, but my heart never buys those lies. And then another way is to criticize. That's when we blame other people. That's when we say, I did this, but it's only because you did that. And that's a common ploy, but it doesn't work. And then there's a final way people try to deal with guilt, and that is they internalize it. That's when you beat yourself up. You see, we know that somebody should pay for it, and so we decide that that somebody is going to be me. And so we put self-inflicted punishment on ourselves. But you know what? It never takes away the guilt. None of those things work. There's only one way to deal with guilt, and that's to give it to God because He's the only one who can take it away. And there's only one place to go to get your sin and your guilt taken away, and that's the cross of Jesus Christ. Let me show you a verse. Look at Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. The very end of that verse says, He has forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. He forgave all of your sins, and he took the certificate of debt, all the sins that you've committed against God, and what did he do with that certificate of debt? He nailed it to the cross. You say, but you don't know what I've done. Well, that's true. I don't know what you've done. But you know what? This is not based on what you've done. It's based on what Jesus has done. And he died for you. It's not based on how good you are. It's based on how good God is. He took your debt of sin and he nailed it to the cross. You say, well, how do I get forgiveness from God? Let me show you another verse. It's 1 John 1, 9. If you don't have it memorized, you ought to. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now notice doesn't say you beg God. You don't have to come to God and say, pretty please, God, with sugar on top. You don't beg. And it doesn't say you bribe. 
God, if you forgive me, I promise to read my Bible every day and I'll always go to church and I'll tithe 20%. No, it doesn't say you bribe. And it doesn't say you bargain. You don't say, God, if you forgive me, I promise I'll never do this again. Because, you see, if that's a point of weakness in your life, the chances are you very well may do it again. You don't beg, you don't bribe, you don't bargain. What do you do? You confess it to God and you believe that He's going to do what He says He's going to do and that is forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You say, well, Dan, I've done that and I still feel guilty. Well, then you don't understand how God forgives does 1 John 1, 9 say He forgives you and cleanses you of most of your sins? No. It says all of your sins. You see, I come to God and I confess the sins I know about. I've also committed a lot of sins I don't even know about. I didn't even notice. I come to God and I confess the sin that burdens me. And what does He do? He cleanses me from all unrighteousness. Even the little tiny ones... Even the real big ones? Yes. Even the ones I still feel guilty about? Yes. Listen to me carefully this morning. If you still feel guilty about a sin that you have honestly confessed to God, that guilt is not from God. That guilt is from the devil. You see, before you commit a sin, the devil always minimizes it. He says it's no big deal. After you commit a sin, what does he do? He maximizes it. That was so big that God will never forgive you. But the truth is, he forgives all our sins. Micah 7, 19 says, He has cast all our sins into the depths of of the sea, and as someone has said, he put up a no fishing sign. You see, God took your entire debt of sin and guilt, and as Colossians 2.14 says, he canceled it out. Do you still worry about last November's utility bill? No. Why not? It's paid for. Well, God has taken your sin bill and he's paid for it. When Jesus was on the cross, he said, it is finished. It is paid in full. In Jeremiah 31, 34, God says this, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now, if God has forgotten about it, why are you still remembering it? The first way God restores your soul is by removing your guilt. Second way He restores your soul is by relieving your grief. Not all damaged emotions are brought on by what you do. Sometimes they are brought on by what happens to you. I mean, this is not heaven. So sometimes we experience those lonely feelings, those times of despair. Sometimes we're heartbroken. Sometimes we suffer loss. Sometimes we feel sorrow. 
David knew what it was like to feel grief. Listen to what he said in Psalm 31.9. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted away from grief. My soul and my body also. You ever felt that way, like you're wasted away with grief? Some of you may feel that way this morning. Listen, I can tell you this. God cares about the pain of your grief. The Bible says when he came to the tomb of Lazarus, Jesus wept. Now, Jesus didn't weep for Lazarus because he knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Why did Jesus weep? Jesus wept because he saw the pain and the suffering and the grief that sin and death brought about the people, the family and the friends of Lazarus. He cares about your grief. Now, what do you do when you're grieving? Well, let me show you a passage real quick. 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel 12. We've got to get busy here and get, up, get done. 2 Samuel 12. David committed adultery with Bathsheba, and he experienced guilt. He tells us how he dealt with that guilt in Psalm 51. But he also experienced grief because his little baby was dying. And he prayed that God would deliver the child, but the little baby died. So what did David do? He did three things, and these serve as a pattern for us when we experience grief. Number one, accept what cannot be changed. Look at verse 22. And he said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live, but now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? See, David said, All the grieving in the world is not going to bring my baby back. All the grieving in the world is not going to change the past. And so the first step is acceptance. Second step is believe God's promises. Notice what David says next in verse 23. Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. I can't bring him back, but I know that one day I'm going to go to where he is. You see, instead of dwelling on the past, David looked to the future and he believed the promises of God. Pain is inevitable in this life. Misery is optional. David chose to look to the promises of God rather than linger on the past. And then the third step, focus on what's left, not on what's lost. Look at verse 24. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she gave birth to a son, and he named him Solomon. David didn't focus on what he had lost. He focused on what he had left. In his case, his wife and a new baby. And then he also had something else left. If you slide up to verse 20, it says, So David arose from the ground, washed, anointed himself, changed his clothes, and he came into the house of the Lord and worshipped. What did David do in his grief? He went to church and he worshipped God. 
He came into the presence of the only one who can heal the brokenhearted. And so the second way God restores your soul is by relieving your grief. And then finally, the third way is by resolving your grudges. And this, I might say, is the hardest of all. I feel guilty for what I have done to others. I feel grudges for what others have done to me. And this is one of those things you can count on in life. You're going to have people hurt you. You're going to be hurt at the hands of others. That's something you can count on because life is not fair. But how you handle the resentments of life determine whether you're going to be a bitter person or a better person. There's only one difference between bitter and better, and that's the letter I. I determine whether resentment is going to take root in me, and I determine whether I'm going to give it to God. Now, when you think about it, resentment is really a very foolish thing. Because resentment never hurts the other person. It only hurts you. And some of you here this morning are allowing people from your past to continue to hurt you because you're holding on to that resentment. They've gone on with their life, or they may be dead at this point, and you keep rehearsing it, and every time you do, it hurts you again. When you encounter a grudge, there are two things you need to do. Number one, turn it over to God. Romans 12, 19 says, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. If someone has hurt you unjustly, give it to God. I mean, who can do a better job of revenge, you or God? God has a day set when he's going to square up accounts. And in the meantime, he doesn't want you to avenge yourself because it'll only eat you up. He wants you to entrust it to God. That's exactly what Jesus did. 1 Peter 2.23 says, While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Number one, turn it over to God. Number two, forgive them. Now I want to repeat that so you didn't, don't think you got it wrong. Forgive them. Instead of avenging the wrong, you are to forgive the wrong. Listen to Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger, etc. be put away from you and instead forgive each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. How did God in Christ forgive you? Did he say, I'm going to wait till Dan comes crawling on his belly before I ever think about it? No. He was hanging on the cross, and while hanging on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. You are to forgive others the way Christ has forgiven you. And let me say something. You will never have to forgive another person more than God has already forgiven you. And you will never be healed of relational hurts until you first accept God's forgiveness and you then offer that same forgiveness to the one who hurt you. 
Now, in closing, let's get personal. What is it that you feel guilty about? When I talk about guilt, what is it that pops into your mind and still haunts you? Whatever it is, all the denying it and minimizing it and compromising it and rationalizing it doesn't work. You don't need a self-help book. You need a shepherd. Because nobody can remove that guilt but Jesus Christ. What is it that you're still feeling grief about? What is it in your life that you have lost that is still incapacitating you? Why not accept that it can't be changed, believe God's promises, and focus on what's left, not on what's lost? You see, you don't just need more time. You need a shepherd. Because nobody can remove that grief but Jesus Christ. And what is it that you're still feeling grudges about? What is it that you're still allowing people from your past to hurt you with in the present? Why not turn it over to God and why not forgive them just as Christ has forgiven you? You see, you don't need to get even. You need a shepherd because no one can remove those grudges but Jesus Christ. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. Now, we're going to close in prayer this morning. Before, we, before I do, I'm going to ask Bob Martin, who was baptized this morning, to go out to the lobby. Chuck, you can take him out there. And uh, after the service, I'll ask you to encourage him. And I also want to announce something a little unusual. We've got somebody joining this morning who isn't here. Um, So I will introduce them this morning, and then I'll have them come up in the future so that you can see them and meet them. And that is Wayne and Lois Kaler have decided that they want to join this fellowship. Now, Lois was in the severe accident. She's at home now, not able to get out, but, but they didn't want to wait. So they said, we want to join Sunday even though we can't even be there. And so they're going to join this morning, and then I'll give you the opportunity down the road as Lois recovers and is able to be with us to to meet and greet them and welcome them into our fellowship. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that in our busyness, you provide an oasis of green pastures and still waters, that, that you are the one who can refresh us both physically and spiritually. And Father, I thank you that with all the scars that we get on our souls, sometimes with our own bad choices and sometimes with the happenstances of life, I thank you that you are the only one who can restore my soul. And Lord, I pray that you would teach us that today and that we might long to be with you in those places of peace, that we might take time out of life to come to the green pastures, to come by the quiet waters and let you do what you do best as the shepherd of our souls. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.